Thank you for joining us at BIB Today, the podcast from the newsroom of Business in Vancouver. I'm Kirk LaPointe, publisher and editor-in-chief. Universities were among the many institutions deeply affected by the two years of this pandemic. Uh, Their business models have been disrupted by an uncertain climate for revenues and expenses. Uh, Their methods of instruction, of course, disrupted by health concerns and restrictions. In the middle of this, Joy Johnson advanced into the role as the first female president of Simon Fraser University. Now, SFU, of course, comprises 30,000 students on three campuses in Burnaby, Surrey, and Vancouver, and 160,000 alumni. Um, Good to see you. It's great to be here. It's difficult to know where to start with you. But I'm going to ask you a personal question, and this is a left-field question. Okay, so we're here today on a day, and you are a nurse by early career. Mm -hmm. Um, We're here on a day uh, in America where Roe v. Wade has shifted the the landscape. Um, what What do you make of this? What do you make of the U.S. Supreme Court doing this? Well, that is a little bit out of left field, but I'm happy to answer, you know, um, in part because not only am I a nurse by background, but I'm a health researcher. Health researcher in gender studies. In gender studies, that's right. So uh, I, very... I, I can't think of someone who would actually be more capable of, of coming at this issue. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, I totally believe in, uh, in the right for people to control their own bodies. Uh, men, women, boys, girls, gender diverse people, they should have the right to control their own bodies. And so the Roe v. Wade decision, I think, is a real setback. It's a setback for the United States, um, but in particular, a setback for women. And Mm -hmm. I I am deeply, deeply concerned about the health consequences um, because we know what happens when access to abortion is not available. Um, People end up doing two things. They have children that they don't necessarily want and can't necessarily afford or support, or they try to seek abortions that might not be safe, and both lead to really dire consequences. So I think this is a bit of a reckoning. Um, I think that in Canada, we need to continue to value um, the rights um, uh, that individuals have over their own bodies to choose. And I hope that in Canada, we can continue to hold that line. For all the, all the women, and I think all the men as well, this issue matters uh, immensely. But where I want to see if it intersects with the university is what, what do you think this development says about the nature of discourse in the United States and maybe where it perhaps has an impact on us here? Yeah, it's such a good question. And I would say we are probably in a more polarized time than ever before. Right, left, um, you know, extreme political positions, uh, an unwillingness to really listen to one another uh, on important issues, um, failure to look at evidence, um, you know, you name it. And so what does that mean for universities? We have a more important role than ever because we are, in many ways, the public square. We do believe in freedom of expression and and in the use of evidence and can hold that space and need to hold that space where people can come together, have civil discourse, f- sort out different issues, honor evidence, and find a way forward. So um, I just hope that um, we continue to value our post-secondary institutions because this is really one of their key purposes. And, and when you um, expand on this, if you can, I wonder what it also means in terms of the amount of time, the allocation, the attention that a university leader now provides to, this, to the questions that exist out there about 
how well we are doing with our discourse at the moment and what the role of a university has to be. Yeah, I, I think uh, leaders have to be on top of this. I talk to my colleagues across Canada who are university presidents, and mm. we do see um, issues arising around academic freedom on campuses. Um, and we do see that polarization of discourse also on our campuses, so it's very, very important for us to be paying attention to this. Um, but, you know, to be frank, um, I think it is really the job of a president to, you know, hold that line and to make sure, because there are many people who would like us to close down certain conversations on our campuses, difficult conversations. Mm -hmm. And so um, to really honor freedom of expression, academic freedom means also that sometimes we have to have conversations that we don't want to hear as well. Um, And so to really create that space, I think is super important. Um, I don't want to pry too much on this one, but have you had to make decisions since you've been the president on permitting a conversation that you think in your heart you're like oh this one's pretty tough so i haven't had that yet touch wood i'm not going to touch the <laughs> table but touch wood okay and and you know but there was a there was an example when i was vice president of research and andrew petter was the president a dynamic that um took place and this was um you know, uh, an individual who was sponsored to come to the university who held very, um, um, I would say, a, a position that I certainly don't agree with on um, transgender people. Mm. Uh, we, most of us would have found the position offensive. And I think the, the fine line um, that we have to th- be thinking about is that human rights line, um, whether hate is, is being invoked. And before someone comes and speaks on your campus, it's really hard to prove the point that they're going to invoke hate. It's hard to predict what they're actually going to say. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, it, it is a difficult space because you want to also make sure that people um, feel safe um, on our campuses. And I think that, you know, we kind of threaded that needle as best we could. Uh, I do anticipate there'll be other issues like this as we move forward. And we need to find ways, I mean, to to potentially um, have these speakers, but also to make sure that there is a counter position also being made available. On the, not quite the flip side of that, but certainly uh, in some relation to it, uh, is the fact that universities now um, have advanced themselves considerably in terms of the diversity mm-hmm. of not just uh, student body, but faculty as well. Yeah. And again, um, I'm looking for uh, an understanding of how you're allocating your time in, in all of this and, and in terms of advancing uh, to make sure that the university is as reflective of the community it's serving and the people that it wants to necessarily spring forward into that community for generations. Yeah, I think this is an important issue of our time. And um, so when I became president in September 2020, um, I talked about three priorities that I had. And one priority was the student experience. We need to always focus on our students. Uh, The other was reconciliation and our work that we had to do around reconciliation. And the third was equity, diversity, and inclusion. And I do believe tone on top matters. I do believe that a president has a role to play. And I have spent considerable time. Indeed, I think I would say I probably every day of my presidency have done something to try and move the dial ever so slightly, but move the dial in relation to inclusion, because that is really important to a university. Yeah. Do you have uh, any sense at all of how that might differ from, say, a generation ago 
for a university president. Eh? Well, I think um, it's it, it, it's not optional anymore. I would say um, mm-hmm. so. Yeah. That's number one. And I I would say um, there is also a demand from our community, our students, our faculty and staff to be accountable in this regard. So not just to talk the talk, but to really develop robust plans and to hold ourselves accountable in terms of trying to be a more inclusive university. There is a provincial uh, review of uh, post-secondary institutions underway right now. It's it's a regular occurrence. Yeah. Um, how do you think this occurrence, though, is maybe different than earlier ones? And what does that put you, in a sense, on notice to, to argue on behalf of the institution? Yeah, so, you know, I, I welcome the, the review. I think it's good for post-secondary uh, sector to have, uh, a, you know, a peek under the hood to look at what's working and what's not. Um, I think what's different right now, um, just in the way that the um, questions are being framed for us, is that this is not simply a review looking at 26 unique institutions, but looking at, um, I would say, the ecosystem. Mm. And so there are key questions being asked about how we cooperate with one another, how we can work together, how we can actually be a a system. Uh, We talk about ourselves as a system. So I think that is important for us. We can do so much more if we don't compete. If we actually yes. collaborate and think about not duplicating, but think about how we can work across our post-secondary system. And I think that's a key question that we need to be thinking about. Yeah. In the Netherlands, where my daughter is a scientist, everyone has a set of unique faculties that mm. they serve in the country. And there really is almost no of that, none of that competition, you would call it. But in a lot of ways, you know, that competition also can kind of force you to go and try to try to develop uh, and you, you can be held back when you're hindered from you know having a faculty of medicine or a faculty mm-hmm. of law or a faculty of business or something like that um, what arguments are do you want to put forward for SFU yeah I mean I guess there are a few arguments I mean the other thing is they are looking part of the review is to look at the funding um, of post-secondary and I would say our funding has been pretty flat we've had two percent increases on our operating budget year over year mm. and when you think about inflation and you think about other factors you know drawing into the university um, we're being asked for example to provide more services to our students more mental health support more sexual assault support more all of these services and this is coming out of our operating funds yeah. Um, you know, we're, we're facing a bit of a, um, a, an issue in terms of trying to, to maintain a really robust um, university um, set of resources to make sure we have top caliber resources for students, but also uh, educational resources. So, you know, all that to say, um, I do think as well, um, there is an opportunity to talk about the funding for universities. Um, you know, SFU, great university, top of a mountain, 55 years old, though, our main campus. And Arthur Erickson was a builder who had a few challenges in terms of... I bet. Yeah. yeah. So, so, you know, we've got some maintenance issues, some um, deferred maintenance that we need to deal with as well. And we need the, we need the government to work with us to find some solutions to that. Um, it, how much of a solution in there, or at least a, a part of that anyway, uh, lies with alumni? I mean, the United States appears to have uh, so many benefactors that graduate and, and, and donate. And I know SFU has them, and so do other, other places uh, in, in the post-secondary sector. But do we have the right conditions in order to encourage alumni to be giving back and back and back? 
Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I would say you're right. The culture of philanthropy is very different in the United States in the post-secondary sector than it is in Canada. But that being said, we have some amazing alumni who are extremely generous. Um, and, you know, the other thing I would say about our alumni, uh, not only are they generous, but, you know, we have alumni scattered around the world in 140 countries. Mm. They're also an incredible opportunity for us, for British Columbia as well, to have touchdown spots, um, to have connectivity um, globally um, through alumni of our post-secondary sector. And so they bring a lot to us, and we need to find ways to continue to leverage our alumni as well, I would say. And so, yeah, there's work to do there. Um, but we need a value proposition for them so that they remain engaged with us and they see that as part of their role. Yeah. Uh, are, are tax regimes in the correct place? Uh, are there sufficient incentives for alumni to donate, do you think? I think there are. I mean, I guess the other thing I would say about donations um, right now is that the old days of just writing a blank check are done. I think mm-hmm. we've got very sophisticated donors who want to see their money used for very specific purposes. And we need, part of the work right now is to really listen well, understand what our donors want and find that alignment. Um, and uh, and then demonstrate how we're using their money well. Uh, that's the other thing. And so um, that's something I'm really paying attention to. And that is an important job of a president. Sure. It's not just the, the alumni pressure that comes into you in terms of your revenue stream, but there are also commercial pressures. And again, as, as the universities evolve and as costs become harder to meet at times, um, is there any budge room around... Uh, commercial presence on a campus and and you know a greater essentially a, a greater pact of some sort that kind of moves over the line that we always thought of in terms of that independence of an institution yeah you know I I certainly believe in um, the proposition of public institutions and that what they bring to us um, but I also believe in industry partnership absolutely and um, we have some amazing industry partnerships um, um, but they are not necessarily partnerships in which we're delivering post-secondary education through those partnerships these are partnerships for research or for internships or for other uh, other ways that we can actually benefit industry and I think this is more and more important as well because universities have an important role to play in terms of helping um, develop R&D in terms of helping uh, economies continue to grow as well. And um, we need to be thinking very carefully about that. Uh, well, you took the role uh, at the loveliest of times. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and um, But you must have had an understanding by now of what kind of new reflection at the university there is about its overall role and whether there is emerging any kind of a slightly different vision of what a university ought to provide into the community. Uh, what are your thoughts on, on where your thinking has gone now? Yeah, so I, SFU is, in my view, a really cool place, um, in part because it is an engaged university. And I do really believe in that vision, uh, that universities as public institutions need to be deeply involved in their communities. Um, and SFU is across our three campuses with our th- the three cities that we engage with. And we need to partner um, with communities uh, to solve problems, probably more now than ever before. And I think the other thing I'm seeing more and more in terms of a, an inflection point, as I look at economic plans for this province, I look at you know where um, gaps are going to be in terms of um, um, employment. 
you know, universities are going to have an even greater role to play. You know, a million new jobs are going to be created over the next 10 years, and 80% of them are going to require post-secondary education. So I think we need to find ways to kind of um, partner, think about those opportunities, make sure that we are being responsive. Don't get me wrong, I still continue to believe in the value of a degree in history, a degree in, um, in, the, in the fine arts, etc. But I think we also need to really take our responsibility seriously to think about um, how we prepare people as they move into, um, into good-paying jobs. And, and to be clear, um, our students, they graduate um, uh, from university, and the majority of them do get good-paying jobs in short period of time in areas of their choice. And so a university degree is, uh, I think, an, an incredible proposition still. Yeah, it, it clearly uh, pays off. There's no, uh, the evidence is very clear on that. But we are one of the most expensive places in the world to mm-hmm. live. And, uh, and what I wonder about is how challenging it is, given that almost every other business talks about labor shortages at the moment, challenges of recruitment, yeah. challenges of retention, all that. What did, well, how has that changed the picture for SFU in recent years? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, um, those pressures are really being experienced at SFU in terms of faculty recruitment, staff recruitment, retention, etc. And then you add on a pandemic. Mm-hmm. and um, other uh, other sectors offering much more flexibility in terms of the work arrangements, etc. So uh, I think that we need to continue to think about, again, the value proposition as a university, as a place uh, to work, what we offer people. And uh, we're thinking about that a lot. We're thinking about the environment that we offer, the way we support people as they move through uh, either their faculty or staff roles. Um, and try to make sure that we are creating, uh, I think, the levers, you know, that really will encourage people to come and to stay. Mm. But uh, in certain areas, we are really struggling, I will say, um, in particular in terms of faculty recruitment. And these are areas where I would say industry is really ambitious as well. So computing science, anything related to analytics, um, these, these are very, very competitive positions. And our faculty members know that they can go and get a job in industry and probably triple um, their salary. Right. So uh, we need to create a value proposition for them that really um, makes it makes sense for them in terms of working in a great environment, engaging with fantastic students, owning their own IP should they choose to. Yes. Those kinds of dynamics, I think, can be very positive. Uh, it's it's becoming a self-interested uh, area to explore with someone, uh, but. I want to know what you're doing about older workers. (laughs) Yeah, so, you know, what we're doing is, you know, we don't don't hold any prejudice against, you know, in terms of anyone's age at the university. We've got a number of um, faculty and staff that are well into their 70s. And they continue to contribute incredibly. And so what we need to do is find ways to support, continue to support them, make sure they feel valued and part of the university, but also make sure that they remain relevant um, Mm -hmm. and that we give them the tools to do that. I don't think we can assume that people will stay relevant. They need to kind of get nudged along. We need to create those expectations as well. And I think we can do that. And, um, And a number of those professors and staff um, just uh, provide incredible value for us. Yeah. Uh, I ask a lot of leaders of uh, industry and institutions the same sort of question, which is, how are you a different leader now in the pandemic? 
Well, um, I think that for me, uh, in terms of my leadership, uh, I probably have doubled down on trying to be um, authentic. Um, like this is a time to be very real with people because they're hurting. And um, so I, I would say authentic leadership is really, really important and to be empathetic. Um, this is not a time to kind of just say smarten up and get into the office, you know. Um, people have struggled. Um, our students have struggled. Um, we see mental health issues among our students in particular, really mm -hmm. at a peak point. And so we need to listen, um, we need to pay attention, and we need to respond. And so I would say these are kind of characteristics that I thought were important, but I would say as a leader, I've really doubled down in both those areas. Yeah. Are those the same things you've learned about yourself or just about you as a leader? Uh, I would say, like, I, you know, I can't really um, parse that in some ways. I think that I don't really separate myself as a leader um, from myself as a person. And uh. I actually think that's the best kind of leader, personally, that you show up as you are um, and you think about using um, your own skills and abilities. Um, you think about using the assets that you feel comfortable with to really move forward. And then you surround yourself with super smart people who um, can actually help you deliver um, as you need to. Last area, uh, of course, you're, you're, you have a five-year term. Um, I'm not going to ask you whether you, you already want a second term, but you, that option will likely be around for you. Um, but do you have a, an understanding now about halfway through this five-year term? What's the accomplishment you'd like to be able to say, this was me? So, you know... In some ways, I wish I could have a do-over. I feel like I got gypped out of almost two years of my time because I spent my first two, two years really very operational, yeah. trying to just get us through, as you said, right? Mm -hmm. like, and I think a president you know, really wants to make a difference, make a mark, um, try to move the... I believe the job of a leader is to leave the institution in better shape than you found it. And so we're just now starting strategic planning. Um, so I'm excited about that. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of interested in what's next and to start that process. But I would say I am very also very proud of just having us had survived as an institution over the past two years. Sure. We got to own that. Not everybody did. Yeah, not everyone did. And I think that, you know, for the most part, I run into faculty, staff and students and they're like, yeah, we're, we, we didn't even just get through it. We, we did well. We're whole. Um, certainly, we're still afraid, um, but we are whole and we're moving forward, and that's positive. And so I feel proud of that as an institution. I think we've done really well. Um, we've worked closely with public health. Um, we've worked with the sector, and um, we've been aligned, and I think that's, that says something. Yeah. It must have helped you as a former nurse, as a former researcher, to pay attention to the science and all of this as well, right? You, you would have been probably one of the more serene leaders going. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think, as particularly having a little bit of background myself in public health, helped a lot. And I actually had a network of colleagues I could call. Um, and actually, I would say on that as well, I knew very early on that our best way to survive was to follow public health guidelines, not go above them, not go below them, follow the guidelines. And always, always following that line has really helped us a great deal, I'd say. Yeah. Well, it's been a great conversation. I really thank you for your time. I hope you come back regularly and we can talk. Keep Love to going. talk more. Yeah, thank you so much. It's Joy good. Johnson, president of SFU. I'm Kirk LaPointe, publisher and editor-in-chief at BIV. Thanks for watching.